Welcome. Having that medal to be able to be confident enough in yourself. And it took me a long time to develop that confidence. I was such a shy, unconfident young woman. And the Coast Guard brought out, gave me an opportunity to bring out a better part of me through making me work hard, through giving me hardships that I had to overcome by not making it easy and not making it comfortable and putting me in positions where I had to stand up to somebody who might be bigger and, and, um, and maybe not supportive even, but by going through all those tests, I was able to learn and grow and come out um, as a leader and come out eventually successful. But I, there were times when I wasn't sure I was going to be successful and I wanted to quit. And I am so glad that I persevered. Um, and looking back, um, I, of course, would know to persevere because I've already lived it. But our message for your listeners is you've got to not just work hard. Welcome. In breaking ice and breaking glass, leading in uncharted waters, Vice Admiral Sandy Stosh, U.S. Coast Guard, retired, draws upon her 40 years of extensive experience and wisdom as a woman directing mostly all-male teams in frontline leadership positions to provide tools that will help leaders, particularly those at the middle level, reach their goals and succeed. The purpose of the book is to provide tools that will help leaders navigate complexity to reach their goals and succeed at every level. Character-centered, proven leadership principles emerge from Admiral Stosh's engaging, personal stories that teach leaders how to find, and then become, an inspiring mentor, implement effective diversity, inclusion, and equity programs, successfully lead in an ever-changing environment, and much more. Tiffany, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really like the metal of honor because I think that my life has been characterized by by metal from uh, the time I was a kid up to when I retired from the Coast Guard. And starting when I was a child, I got interested in military service by chance. And I think that's an important theme in my life. Not everything was scripted goal that I had, I took advantage of opportunities as they came. So in 1976, and I know this sounds like a long time ago to some of your listeners, I was uh, born and raised in Ellicott City, Maryland, and that's somewhat near the Naval Academy in Annapolis. And as the listeners might know, there are four service academies, Annapolis and Naval Academy in Annapolis the Military Academy in West Point, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, and the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. In 1976, uh, when I was a junior in high school, the service academies all opened their doors to women. And it was by an act of uh, Congress, because they'd only been men up until then. So as a junior in high school, I was right in the middle of college applications, and a neighbor walked over 
and dropped off an article from the Baltimore Sun that talked about how the Naval Academy was going to admit women, and it gave a whole story on the Naval Academy. And I read that with great interest, thinking about, wow, I'd always kind of wanted to sail. I never had the means or the ability, but I thought it would be cool to go out and uh, get on the water with a sailboat. And I thought, wow, this could be a great opportunity for someone like me. I was interested in marine science, and here was a... Um, a college, a service academy that was on the water would allow me to serve my country, which sounded patriotic. It was free. And that was a big deal in the 1970s when we had hard financial times. So I applied to the Naval Academy and my high school guidance counselor said, Sandy, you should cast a wider net. And he said, I got a flyer in the mail. It's from the Coast Guard Academy. And we looked at it, and between the two of us, we came to the conclusion that the Coast Guard was a small Navy, which, of course, wasn't the case. But we uh, decided that, and I applied to the Coast Guard Academy as a backup. But the Coast Guard Academy got back to me pretty quickly and accepted me. A wonderful thing about the Coast Guard Academy is we're under Title 14 of the United States Code, not Title 10, so we didn't have to have congressional nominations. It was direct admission on your merit. So I like the fact that they were looking at me based on my performance, not politics and congressional nomination. So I applied um, there and got accepted and, um, and took that acceptance. I accepted the admission, and the rest is history. I started out at the Coast Guard Academy in 1978 with the third class of women. I'm glad you mentioned the Title 14 versus Title 10. During your time in the military, did you see the Coast Guard going from Homeland Security, a branch of the military, to defend the nation versus anything else? Yes, thanks for asking that question, Tiffany. It gives me a chance to talk a little bit about the unique history um, of the Coast Guard. So we started out as the Revenue Cutter Service under Alexander Hamilton, um, who was George Washington's Secretary of the Treasury. So the Coast Guard started out in the Treasury Department up until the 1960s when we switched over to the Transportation Department, when they were creating that department and needed to build it up with some big organizations. And then after 9-11, we switched over to the Department of Homeland Security for the same reason, because that department was forming and needed to pull in all the components, agencies that would make sense for that department, um, cabinet department. So the Coast Guard has had a history of um, um, multi-mission, multi-services, military we're very interagency. We are very collaborative. We bring a lot of authorities to the table. So everybody wants to partner with the Coast Guard. We're a very strong partner in the intelligence and the um, cyber communities because of some of the authorities we have under the titles of law that govern us as opposed to the DOD, which has um, different titles. So, yes, we um, are a military maritime multi-mission service that... Um, that is small, but very, very effective.
Absolutely. Um, it's amazing what you can learn from history that helps ground you as a better leader. So if you have a foundation that, um, that understands those relationships, those events, how they played out, um, who were the winners and who were the losers and how they succeeded, you're going to be a much better leader. And that's why I have history in my reading list all the time. I've always got, I've got a couple different kinds of um, uh, literature that I like to read. I like to read fiction, of course. I think everybody likes a good story. I like literary fiction, especially classics, nonfiction, which has some good advice. But I think history, where you're learning through the eyes of people who lived that, and I like biographies, so one of my favorite biographies is Peter the Great by Massey, and another one is um, Nimitz by E.B. Potter, another one is um, uh, Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. You learn so much by looking at what these people went through and the mistakes they made and how they learn from them and how they move forward, what made them successful, how they failed, and looking at how they recovered from failure. So I do think history is so important. It's so much more than what most people think it is. Those are both great authors and great leaders. I agree. Speaking of leadership, you and history, you, women in the military and history, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I get asked that question a lot, and I started out um, this interview with a little bit of background on how I uh, joined the Coast Guard and how I came into the Coast Guard Academy with just the third class of women, which, of course, set me up to be one of the first women wherever I went for the next 36 years, or actually 40 years, if you include that four years there. So I was the first woman assigned to most of my Ships, I spent 12 years at sea. Um, I was a line officer, um, operations afloat, a specialty in the Coast Guard. So that was um, a, a, a new field for, for women, too, um, being in the front lines. And once again, Title 14 allowed me, as a young officer, to be able to serve on any Coast Guard unit, whereas my peers at the Naval Academy, which was governed by Title 10, they were eliminated, limited from being able to serve on warships and fighter, anything to do with combat, fighter planes, uh, up until um, 20 years later when different laws were put in place allowing women to serve in combat. But from the time that the Coast Guard started to integrate women, I could serve on and did as a third-class cadet, which is a sophomore cadet. I was in the Caribbean on board the 378-foot um Cutter Dallas, which is the equivalent of a very small Navy frigate, but it had Harpoon and Seawiz missile systems on it, and uh, it was a combat ship, and I was serving on it as a woman back in 1979. So the Coast Guard never restricted people, and I give the service credit because the reason I was successful, and, and Tiffany, earlier on, you, you told me that I was a successful woman, and, you know, it wasn't me. Um, to some extent, it was. It was, though, society opening the door, allowing me to enter into the academy. And then it was the Coast Guard saying, hey, we're going to help make women successful by letting them serve on any of our units. Now, yeah, some of them were limited by birthing, but they weren't limited by policy. And then, of course, to be successful, it is on you to be working hard, persevering, 
and showing metal throughout your career. But I ended up being the first um, woman to serve on a lot of my ships. And I uh, was the first woman to serve as superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy. And uh, in fact, that's kind of how when I retired, I wrote a book um, to give back my leadership lessons learned over those 40 years. And my book is called um, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters. So it was a journey to be the first. Um, I embraced it after I realized I couldn't outrun it because I really did just want to be another Coast Guard person, not a woman Coast Guard person. So when I was at the Coast Guard Academy's first woman superintendent in my um, speech, when I was installed, I said, I can't wait for the day when people look at me as the 40th superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy, not the first woman superintendent. You know, I like that you said that. I And I recently, and I don't know where, but I recently read something um, as it related to uh, racism and gender and all these firsts that we celebrate. And the comment that was made was, you know, when you've, you will know that when, how was it? We will know when we have arrived, when we no longer celebrate the first and then fill in the blank, because it'll become such a normal thing of a woman filling this position and an African-American filling that position or Native American, you know, filling this position. When we can get to the point to where that is normal and part of everyday life in America, then we can say that we've arrived. Yes, and you know, another thing, Tiffany, is um, a critical mass. So you can have the first woman to serve here and there, the first African-American. But if you're talking about a, um, let's just talk about the Coast Guard Academy, because I was uh, the superintendent there. So when I was a cadet, we had 5% women. <laughs> I was the third class of women. 5% of the entire cadet corps was women. Um, when I was superintendent, that number had gone up to almost 40%. And that's about where it is now because I was just in that job a few years ago. So critical mass is also important. And another little saying is, you know you've got critical mass, which means enough of those minority voices so that they're seen and heard and respected and acted upon. So enough people there in that minority cohort, if you want to call it that, that they actually have a voice and are recognized as a critical, vital part of the workforce. And um, in a lot of places, we still don't have that critical mass. So I think that's important for people to notice um, when they're leading an organization or a team, you need to make sure you have critical mass. And if you don't, you need to look at ways to make those minoritized minority people feel valued and know they have a voice. And one way I did this was I would look around the table at a big, important meeting where I had 15 people around the table when I was leading a meeting. There was one or two women at the table, one or two blacks. And I would, often they wouldn't say anything. And I would, at the end or at the right place, I'd say, hey, um, Lieutenant um, Jones or Lieutenant whoever, what do you think? And that person, that woman, that minority would have maybe the best idea all day, but they hadn't had the confidence to express it. So it's incumbent upon leaders to make sure that those um, those minority voices are heard, right? And then we can start to say we've, we've 
got a hold on this uh, um, equity, right? Yes, I agree. Uh, and so one of the things that you know, I, I came into the military in the mid-90s. So from the time, I, so that, that was about half, when I entered into the military, that was about halfway through your career. So when I came in, the role of women looked different than it did when you went in. And even now, uh, 40 years after you came in, it looks even different than when I initially entered the military. So the question that I would want to ask you is what, as you observed the dynamics of you serving serving on a ship, being the only female or one of few females, and then seeing that population grow, what did that mean to you? Do you have any personal experiences of um, being treated as less than because of your gender? What did that What did that look like for you? I'm glad you asked that question because maybe I can offer a little different perspective, which I think is really important because not everybody has the same experience. And um, people often ask me, wow, you came in back when there weren't many women. You were the only woman on a ship with 150 men. Uh, what was that like? And certainly their expectation was that it would be very hard. But um, I will tell you that I actually found it very empowering to be in the minority, and I'll tell you why. So I'll give you a story. So I was the first and only woman assigned to um, um, a medium endurance law enforcement cutter in Eureka, California, back in 1985. I know this is a long time ago, but this is where, you know, women started coming in. And um, I was the operations officer, which was the third in command on that ship after the commanding officer and the executive officer. So I think that in all um, completeness of the story, having position power by virtue of being a senior relatively as an officer helped with with um, working with an all-male crew. But, um, but I found that finding ways to leverage my differences was um, a sign of strength. And I'll give you an example. I was um, on the watch on the bridge of the ship um, one evening, and I started to get to know the guys by then. It was about two two months into my assignment. We were underway on a patrol in the Pacific Ocean, and uh, it's one of those dark nights we're on watch and, and slow. There's not much to talk about or do. So the quartermaster looked at me and said, ma'am, he said, we like having you on board because a bunch of us guys don't like the cussing on the nest deck and all this crude behavior. And now we can use you as an excuse. We can say, hey, you can't do that. Miss Stoves is on board. We've got to clean up our act. And um, I was kind of surprised to hear that because I'm like, wow, I'm so glad he told me because then the next time I walk under the mess deck, I and I heard somebody cussing before I got there, you know, coming down the passageway, I could hear somebody let out a cuss, say, hey, you can't do that. Would you do that if your mom or sister were listening? I'd kind of be joking about it, but the guys would catch themselves and they'd say, oh, yes, yeah, sorry, ma'am. But pretty soon... Um, the, the climate on the ship became better for everybody. <laughs> 
And so I, I kind of, there's a lot more to that story. I mean, when we went on boardings, um, I found that being a woman, um, going aboard armed, fully armed with a 45 caliber pistol, going on board fishing boats in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to check them for compliance with the laws, um, I found it actually to be a strength to be a woman. It was something different to the vessel masters. They kind of had, um, a different way of looking at a woman, not as threatening, maybe, as another man coming on board and wanting to see their fish and see their guns. So I played that up and, and said, hey, I'm going to take advantage of the power that comes with being different. So Tiffany, I think it's important to know that if you choose to look at your difference as a superpower, <laughs> then maybe you can play that into, parlay that into success. And that's kind of what I did. And I know I had some good fortune. It's not on me. I had supportive bosses. Um, I had some position power, not being a junior enlisted person. But I still think that my message to women is look at your difference as a superpower and and try to leverage it. I like that. And I found myself doing doing something similar. Uh, I When I served, I was aware that women in the military was definitely a minority, but I didn't care. It, it stopped there for me. And I just thought, okay, great. So what? There's not as many women and just would keep on. And I remember being told I, I was at uh, Fort Bel- Belvoir, Virginia, and I was talking. Now, I know to, to kind of set it up, I'm only five feet tall. And when I say five feet tall, I mean five foot nothing. There's not even an extra inch there. And I was talking to a soldier who fell under me who had done something wrong and I was laying into him and we were outside in the parking lot and somebody who saw us talking said, I wish I had a camera and took a picture of that. And I said, well, why, why is that? And he said, because you have this short white female laying into this six foot five African American male and it was nothing to you. And I said, well, because the things that you noticed really are irrelevant. So what? I'm short. I'm white. I'm a female. But I outrank him. And it was my job to lead him. Therefore, that's what I was doing. I was correcting him on something that needed to be corrected. And so I, I do agree is that, you know, I agree that, um, if I, if, if as I led as a service member and not as a female, it, it ended up being a great thing. And even in that same duty station, they, they would, the soldiers that fell under me would make comments like, man, I just don't know about her. She's like, she's like mama bear. One minute she's like, loving on us and taking care of us and then the next minute she's laying into us i don't even know what to think with her sometimes but then one of them said well when they were as they were talking i then walked up and i said does your mama care about you does your mama ever get on to you and he'd be like oh you heard that yeah i did i got ears just like your mama does (laughs) your mama sees and hears everything and uh He's like, well, you know, we know we, 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 we know you care, but it's just, you know, 
dang. I said, well, again, I asked the same question. Did your mom care about you? Was she, did she get on you about different things? And he said, yes. And I said, all right, end of story. There you got it. I care about you even when I'm getting on you about something because I want you to know what right looks like. And I want you, when you leave here or when I leave here, I want you to know that what I've instilled in you is to do what's right, whether somebody's looking or not. So I, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I totally agree with you. That's a powerful story. <laughs> and I wish more people would look at their circumstances in that light. And I never let my gender define you, me. And it seems like you're the same way. And we're both successful. So... I think that that's a key element to success is having the metal. I love your podcast name and other people call it grit, but those are both great words. Having that metal to be able to be yes. confident enough in yourself. And it took me a long time to develop that confidence. I was such a shy, unconfident young woman. And the Coast Guard brought out, gave me an opportunity to bring out a better part of me through making me work hard and giving me hardships that I had to overcome by not making it easy and not making it comfortable and putting me in positions where I had to stand up to somebody who might be bigger and, and, um, and, and maybe not supportive even. But by going through all those tests, I was able to learn and grow and come out um, as a leader and come out eventually successful. But I, there were times when I wasn't sure I was going to be successful and I wanted to quit. And I am so glad that I persevered. Um, and looking back, um, I of course would know to persevere because I've already lived it. But a message for your listeners is you've got to not just work hard, but you can't, you've got to persevere. You got to, I just watched your, your Ted talk by Angela Duckworth today before this um, interview and she talks about looking at um, um, life as not a sprint, but a marathon, so that you not just work hard for that sprint, but you persevere for the longer haul over your whole life. And those are the people who succeed. Absolutely. And that is, that is, that is why I named it the Medal of Honor, because not just to be some play on words, but, but I believe that every person who wore a uniform, whether it was for four years or 40 years, has a story, whether they were the first female superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy or they made it to the rank of E4, E5, and then got out in the military. If they, if, if, if they wore a uniform and they served, they have a story. And they had something to overcome at some point in time in their career. Uh, and some people, many somethings that they had to overcome. So that's what I wanted to accomplish. That's what I, I want to accomplish with this podcast is to provide a platform for people to be able to share that story, whatever that story looks like. And so with that, you said that there were times in your career where you had to persevere and and overcome obstacles. What did that look like for you? Like, what is it? What is it? No matter what the situation is, if you want to share a situation or not, what is it that made you, caused you, helped you to persevere through that particular obstacle? Wow. I could 
I could um, give a whole interview on just that question alone, but I'm going to um, take advantage of a couple of stories um, short. But it started, the story I will start with was when I went to the Coast Guard Academy in 1978, in the third class of women, I came in having graduated in the very top 5% of my significantly large high school class. And um, yeah, I was shy and, and kind of unconfident, but I was a good student. I worked really hard. Every other, lots of other high school kids were out, you know, having fun. And and I wasn't. I was studying and doing my sports. <laughs> Um, but when I got to the Coast Guard Academy, I was slammed. So I was now in with a bunch of peers, most of whom were actually much smarter <laughs> than me. <laughs> so I'd gone from the top of my high school class to the being very average or below average. That was very hard for a person who was already unconfident. And did I want to quit? Did I say, I'm not cut out for this? I am not cut out for this. I am not smart enough to get through this. And But I took advantage of programs that were there for extra help. I had classmates that helped me. And I started to build my confidence. I, I could get just enough good grades to pass. And I realized I'm getting through this. One day at a time. One week at a time. I'm not looking at it as a four-year <laughs> um thing, you know, because it's four years at the Coast Guard Academy. And if I looked at it as I got to get through four more years of this, I never would have made it. I would have quit. So I said, I'm going to get through it one push up at a time, one meal at a time, one day at a time, one week at a time. And I'm going to get through this. And people are going to help me. My instructors are reaching out their hands to help me. My classmates are reaching out their hands to help me. And I'm reaching out to get that help. And I made it. Well, later, another story that's a little more interesting because it's operational is <laughs> I was um, I had been six years at sea after I graduated from the Coast Guard Academy. I went back to Coast Guard headquarters in Washington, D.C., but I thought it was the curse of death to go to. It's like going to the Pentagon for the other military. And um, but I ended up um, getting an assignment as the military aide of the secretary of um, transportation, which was the service we were in at that time. So it was our service secretary, the equivalent of the secretary of defense. So I was his military aide, and I was a young lieutenant, 03. And after that tour of duty, I got command of a of an icebreaker up on the Great Lakes on Lake Superior. It was a 140-foot icebreaker that broke the ice so that the um, iron ore carriers that brought iron ore down from Lake Superior down to the um, factories in Indiana could get escorted through the ice. And uh, when I had my change of command up there, um, the service secretary, who was Secretary Sam Skinner, flew up to preside at my ceremony. And I thought nothing of it. I was young and naive. But my boss up there um was a, an 06, so a captain, the equivalent of a colonel and the uh, other some of the other services. He said to me, he said, You're just the secretary's fair haired golden girl. We'll see how long you last. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness, I had no idea that I was coming up into the remote parts of Michigan, you know, Sault Ste. Marie, um, to take command of a ship. I was the first woman ever to command uh, a boat of any kind on the Great Lakes, I think even in the merchant fleet. And um, he, his mission was to make me fail because he thought that I got there only because I was the secretary's military aide. And in reality, that year, I had um, been told by somebody who has sat on the selection panel 
that of all the people under consideration for different icebreakers, there was probably eight of them in that class of cutter, I had the most icebreaking experience. So certainly had gotten the job by merit. And then this boss of mine who was going to be responsible for my um, fate with my fitness reports was going to be looking to see if he could make me fail. And it was hard. And um, the best part of the story is that after a few months, my chief bosun mate, who was the deck department head, um, so he was an E7, he walked up to the captain in his office, closed the door and said, you need to back off on our skipper. It's affecting the morale of the crew. She's doing a good job. And you're constantly picking on her. And uh, everyone's suffering. He says, you've got to back off. And this was an E7 talking to an O6. And I, I didn't know this until years later that he had done that for me, but I did notice that the captain backed off and that things got better. And I was going to quit. I had my resignation letter written and uh, it was sitting there. And I said, okay, if it gets too bad, I'm just going to sign this letter and turn it in and this will be all over. But you know what? I didn't. I kept persevering because things would get a little better. Um, the captain backed off. And um, a little bit after that, when it all was done, said and done, and that tour duty, you know, was two years. But I, I reflected and I said, you know what? I am so glad that I didn't quit because he would have won. <laughs> and I came close to quitting. And I'm like, man, now he's retired because he, he wasn't been in for a long time. He retired right there while I was still on the ship. And I'm just like, he retired. And I, I had gotten so focused into a tunnel vision that I couldn't see that I had to just take this one day at a time and that this too would pass. So I became a fan of looking at things and saying, hey, this too will pass. You know, once in a while you go through a bad period. But I would not trade that bad boss for anything because I learned so many leadership lessons under him on how not to lead. And I think I learned those in a much more visceral way than I would absorb leadership lessons from a great leader. So I would say to any of those out there who have um, a bad boss or bad work climate, hang in there and and take it one day at a time and this too will pass. I mean, I know that's not always the case, but at least start from that perspective that you can persevere and you've got the metal to get through this and don't let somebody else force you to make a decision or, or, or allow you to make a decision that you're the loser in the long run and, and they're the winner. Heck yeah. <laughs> I uh and what's crazy is I was uh met, found myself many times being like that E seven talking to that O six because for me I look at things <clears throat> I look at things like, hey, right is right, wrong is wrong. Um let's make this right. And one of the things that when when people would ask me, how do you do that? Why do you do that? Or do you not care about your rank and your career? And I said, I, and I would tell them I do, but you have to ask yourself these three questions before you have any conversation with somebody. And I wrote it down on a sticky note and I would have it on my desk so that whoever, whoever would sit at the chair at my desk could see it. And those three questions were, is it legal? Is it moral? Or I'm sorry, is it legal? Is it immoral? Or is it unethical? And if it is legal, and it's not unethical, and it's not 
uh, immoral, then you shouldn't have a problem doing it. And so, yeah, so so that was kind of that was kind of my standard of or 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 the foundation of why am I going to go to this person who outranks me greatly and um, address a particular issue? Is this person doing anything that's illegal, immoral, or unethical? Are they asking anybody else to do one of those things? And if they're not, then I have to then question myself and say, is it worth me entering into a conversation with this person? And if so, why? So I, I think it, you know, I think it is important to be able to address issues and not, yes, I, I mean, yes, definitely respect all people in all ranks, without a doubt. I am not by any means suggesting that uh, it's okay to disrespect somebody, whether they're junior to you or senior to you. But what I am saying is that person that has X amount of rank more than I do doesn't mean that they're that much better of a person. They put on their uniform just like I do. They live a life um, you know, like anybody else lives a life. They make choices. Some are good and some are not. And And I also, similar to what you said, had leaders above me that I thought, oh my gosh, never ever will I ever be a leader like that. If I ever find myself in a position leading, I'm not going to do that. My first boss in the military was like that. And I remember uh, making the comment as a uh, as a private or private first class, whatever rank I was at that time, making the comments, uh, that, that supervisor, he had said something and said, well, I hope you learn from me. And I said, oh, I did. And he was surprised that I said that. And he said, really? What did you learn from me? I thought, oh, gosh, how do I answer this? I said, well, I feel like I can learn from anybody. I can learn from anybody what to do and what not to do. And I just left it at that. Because I was still junior, and I didn't, and, and I, I could still find myself shaking in my boots at that moment in time, saying, "I don't know if I can say this and get away with it," because I had that timidity about me of just not knowing what I could or could not say. So I just said, "I think I can learn from anybody, the good and the bad, what to do and what not to do." And I, <laughs> I guess you yes, a big D for discretion there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you have a book or that you wrote a book, uh, that's the breaking ice and breaking glass. Um, what is, what is that book about? And if people uh, who are listening want to get a copy of that book, how do they go about that? Oh, thanks for asking Tiffany. Um, the book is breaking ice and breaking glass leading in uncharted waters. And it's, named that because I started my career on icebreakers and of course had another icebreaker command um, later in my career and was always one of the first women. So hence the title. And the book is about character-centered leadership. So it goes um, through leading at all levels and how you succeed in that endeavor, leading with character. Uh, so it is all about character-centered leadership, and that's what distinguishes it from um, some of the other books on leadership that you might have out there. And I think we need a focus on character more than ever nowadays as we look at um, the 
tempestuous seas all around us. Um, there's there's a lot um, of need for an anchor to windward to ground leaders in their decisions. And I think that character is that anchor to windward when there's so many um, forces pushing on a leader nowadays. So this book is aimed at the mid-level managers, although it um, starts with my lessons learned from when I was um, younger, even before going uh, into the academy up until my retirement. It's um, hopefully something that a person who's at their mid-level can grab right at the time where they're looking at some key career decisions um, and use that book as a guide for how they can lead and succeed up to the executive level if that is something they desire. Oh, and how to find it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the book is due to be published on June the 1st. And uh, you can pre you can uh, find uh, my link at www.sandrastows.com, and on there I've got a page about the book that you can sign up for my uh, newsletter, my mailing list, so that you can be informed when it's available for pre-order, and that should be somewhere in the April timeframe. All right, springtime. So. Yes. This ring, wow. Yeah, and there's somebody else that I interviewed that has a book coming out this summer called A Wild Ride Called Life. <laughs> so, and it's about her time she retired from the Army. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, I like the idea of reading books uh, from service members. Um, well, I mean, any, 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 just about any book, really. But, yeah, that'll be exciting. Well, you have interviewed Shannon Huffman Paulson, who uh, wrote The Grip Factor, and um, she has great stories of women with grit, you know, the companion word to metal. And she did a great interview with you. So thanks for interviewing her because um, I've read her book and it's awesome. I'd recommend that, The Grit Factor, to anybody. Oh, it's better when we hear your stories. Um, Tiffany, don't discount your stories. I think they complimented mine during this interview and added value to the entire podcast. So you've got a story, too. Thanks for giving me that opportunity, Tiffany. And because you're the Metal of Honor podcast, I am going to give a message on the value and importance of metal, regardless of where a listener might be in their career, out of their career, there's some key elements of success. They really come down to, in my mind, a simple formula of hard work plus the perseverance equals success. And there's certainly a lot more that can be captured in what it takes to be successful. But I think that at the heart of it, if you Find your passion and purpose, and you work hard and persevere towards that, then you're going to succeed. And it might not be tomorrow, <laughs> it might not be the next day, but it's a marathon, not a sprint. So you've got to take it one day at a time, one week at a time. You've got to believe in yourself along the way. So sometimes people quit because they don't believe in themselves. Sometimes they quit because they have that bad boss and they get tunnel vision. So find your passion and purpose. And I know that's not easy. And that can change throughout your career, by the way. 
my passion and my purpose absolutely changed at different inflection points over the course of my career. But I managed to maintain a passion and a purpose, something that was bigger than me to drive towards, to keep me motivated. And I worked hard every day and I persevered. I never quit. And I kept motivated because people have asked me this too, because this whole formula thing is just too simple. Hard work plus perseverance equals success. There's a lot more to it. People have asked me, how did you stay motivated? And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, it's hard to stay motivated. And what I would do is I'd go back to lifelong learning. So I mentioned earlier about reading, and I actually have just written the book, as you know. And I would encourage people to add to their formula for success to lifelong learning, keep on reading, taking a course. Um, most people who are working for the military or a company, those companies are sponsoring you now for education. Um, pick up a book and, and make sure you make time for it. You've got to prioritize um, so that you get time to um, develop yourself so you can stay motivated, so that you can persevere and succeed in achieving the goals you've set for yourself in life. Hi, this is Sia, co-host at Innovation Calling Podcast here. I want to extend my gratefulness to all the men and women who have served our country. We've had the honor to highlight some amazing military leaders and learn how they've applied their experiences in civilian professional life. I'd like to give a shout out to retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding on how the U.S. can be more innovative for the future of telco, and Jim Murph Murphy, founder of Afterburner, on using continuous business improvement through flawless execution. It's that kind of discipline and constant drive to be better that I see in most veterans. And let's be honest, from a business perspective, it is most profoundly appreciated. So thank you for your time, your sacrifice, and love for our country. Keep on being you and proudly pursue your dreams. You've got this. And thanks again. Thank you. Have a nice day.